Ariana Roberts, and you're listening to Arcana Imperii. For today's guest, we're going to be talking to Dr. Belle Burnell. She is an astrophysicist who, in 1967, discovered the first radio pulsars. This discovery eventually earned the Nobel Prize in Physics. However, it was awarded to her thesis supervisor, Dr. Hewish, and she was not one of the recipients of the prize. However, she was later awarded in 2018 the Special Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics, and she donated all of the £2.3 million prize money to help female, minority, and refugee students to help them become physics researchers. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with me. Thank you for the opportunity, Ariana. Uh, so I guess my first question would be, for our listeners that don't know, can you explain what a pulsar is? Pulsar is kind of a dead-end star, a big star ends its life as, as a pulsar. And it's a very, very compact form of star. It's really solid compared with most stars that are balls of gas. And as it shrinks down to this solid size, it spins up faster and faster. So it's whirring around very, very fast. And it produces a beam of radio waves which swing around the sky, a bit like a lighthouse swings a beam around the sky. So if the beam shines on us, we see it as a pulse, pulse. Pulse. So why does a pulsar emit gamma rays and x-ray in like two beams from the poles instead of like just emitting it in all directions? We're not absolutely sure we know the answer to that yet because we finding the physics very, very difficult. There are a lot of extremes, um, extreme electric fields, extreme magnetic fields, extreme rotation, extreme everything all at once which makes the physics very difficult. So we don't have a full explanation yet of, of the physics of it, but we think the picture I've given you is broadly correct. So is a neutron star, like a star that almost became a black hole but didn't have enough mass? That's right, yes. If it had been double its mass, probably, it would have turned into a black hole, yeah. And many have done. So the... The um, James Webb Telescope is going to be launched in December. Is this going to enable us to find more pulsars? James Webb Telescope is primarily optical. And these objects don't, we know of one that shines in the optical. Um, so I'm not sure. But one of the things we've learned in astronomy in recent years is never say never. Uh, each telescope that's launched has produced surprises. So I could be wrong, but we're not expecting a lot. <laughs> okay, I see. So how did you discover pulsars? By accident. I was being very, very, very thorough. I thought I was on the brink of being thrown out. So I was being very conscientious. and noticed this funny little signal that I couldn't make sense of. And when we looked at it more carefully, it turned out to be this string of pulses. It was going pulse, 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 pulse. We'd never seen anything like that before. 
So we spent a long time trying to explain it away, <laughs> but it was real. Um, I guess I did read like um, earlier on there was there was a in 1967 there was a radio source emitting regular 0 0.04 second long pulses every 1.3373 seconds, and um, for the first time using a scintillation scintillation ray, um, and after the noise explanation was ruled out, people started thinking that it was intelligent extraterrestrials. Did this, did like a similar thing happen with you? Or like, um, how did you figure out that those, those pulses were um, pulsars? Um, that story you've just told was my story. It was oh. me. That. I must have mixed the <laughs> dates up on that. Not to worry. I, and I nicked them, nicknamed them Little Green Men, LGM, uh, for a bit of a joke. Uh, if I thought more carefully, I think, Today I wouldn't have done that, <laughs> but that's. <laughs> yeah, was there was like quite... a? Oh, sorry. Quite a surprise discovering a signal like that. Was there like a in the public? Was there a huge like, I don't know, postulating about aliens or something? Well, you get quite a lot of curious mail always, and so yes, there was somebody who wrote to me relating it to pi. I expanded to 31 decimal places and the height of the pyramids measured in feet, which is perhaps feet aren't perhaps a universal unit of measurement, but never mind. <laughs> Did some interesting numerology and all that. Uh, so when the Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of pulsars, it did not go to you. How did you feel about that? I was actually very pleased about that award of the Nobel Prize. It's the Nobel Physics Prize. There isn't an astronomy prize, no Nobel Astronomy Prize. And until then, the physics people hadn't really considered astronomy as good physics. And here for the first time, they're awarding their prize to some astronomers. That's a very big step. So I was pleased about that. Um. But I guess like, but you weren't awarded it. So like, did you feel um, kind of left out of that? Or did you feel like you deserved to be awarded that though? Um, my main interest was that, as I've said, the physics committee saw good physics in astrophysics. Uh, and I was really proud that it was our Star Wars that uh, had convinced the physicists that because that was a really very big step for that committee. I see. Um, I do know that you were later awarded the Special Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics, and I was impressed to hear that you donated all the money to the UK's Institute of Physics to help underrepresented people study physics. What motivated you to do this, and what has the outcome been so far? One of the reasons I reckon that I discovered the pulsars was because I was in a very small minority. There were very, very, very few women in the place at that time. Um, and I felt I had to work hard to justify my place. So I thought if we can get more underrepresented groups into physics, other groups, more women as well, um, they'll likely be so pleased to have a place. They'll work very hard and maybe they'll discover things. 
Um, it's also been shown by McKinsey's, that's a firm that does research into businesses. McKinsey's have shown that the most successful businesses are the ones with the most diverse workforce. Uh, so I thought the same thing will probably apply in physics and we could do with some more diversity in physics. There's a lot of white men and a lot of white men and a lot of white men. <laughs> so, you know, adding some women, some people of color and all that, I thought would be probably good for physics. In an earlier podcast, we were speaking with astrophysicist Professor Katie Mack, and she said, she pointed out that the lack of women in STEM isn't an input funnel problem. And like, if you go to high schools or colleges, there are many women interested in STEM, but she said they're getting discouraged by the misogyny in the fields and they switch to other fields. Um, what can be done to make STEM more inclusive? Um, having more women and more women who are prepared to use their voice or their money or whatever, I think would help. Um, Something that's happened in Britain that's made quite a big difference. Uh, researchers need money to do their research. And the funding bodies have been asking questions about how diverse is your department? How many women are there? And this kind of question. And once funders start taking an interest, then the researchers have to take an interest. Right. <laughs> uh, I read an article in The Guardian where you told like them that you suffered from imposter syndrome and you were kind of describing that before. How prevalent do you feel that is among women in STEM and why does that happen? I suspect quite a lot of people feel imposter syndrome, particularly if, I, if you're at a big name university, you know, how did I get here? <laughs> am, am I meant to be here? This kind of thing. Um, the way around it is, first of all, to talk about it so that other people know they're not alone in feeling it. So I talk about it quite a lot. Uh, and then try and make all this diversity of people welcome so that there are more women and women don't feel in a very small minority and there are more people of colour and there are more LGBT, etc. people. So that's the way to go. But it'll take time, I'm afraid. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess going back to pulsars, I did see some articles um, when I was reading up on pulsars that said that they're thinking of using pulsars as cosmic lighthouses, like GPSs sort of for spacecrafts. Um, could you talk about that or maybe like some, uh, what is like the future for pulsars? Well, that certainly is one possibility, um, not immediately because we're not traveling through the galaxy yet, um, although we're sending unmanned spacecraft quite long ways. Uh, you may know that in ancient times, ships navigated using lighthouses on the shore, and each lighthouse had its own characteristic pattern of flashes. So you, you knew which lighthouse you were looking at, so you knew pretty well where you were. Well, it turns out that pulsars come in quite a variety, each with their own pulse rate. So they could literally be used like ancient mariners used lighthouses. You get maybe see two or three pulsars and you can pin your position pretty well. The main complication at the moment is you need a really very big radio telescope 
So how do you launch a satellite with a very big radio telescope attached to it? <laughs> so there's some technical issues to be overcome, but it's... And in a sense, we've already used pulsars that way. Um, the satellites that went out, um, gosh, forgotten their names. They have a plaque on them. And the plaque is in case the satellite gets picked up by intelligence elsewhere in the universe. And it shows a man and a woman with no clothes on, which caused some problems, but a man and a woman <laughs> with no clothes on. And then this funny sort of star pattern. And at the center of the star is the Earth, and each prong of the star points to a pulsar and gives its period. So we've already started using periods, the pulsar with their periods, for positioning things. In that instance, us. Wow, that's really fascinating. Um, I guess, what are sort of the, what are some like, other contemporary topics in astrophysics that you find the most interesting or what are where are breakthroughs being made or big mysteries yet to be answered well there are a lot of big mysteries still to be answered the biggest one is probably what is this dark matter we know about stars and material that shines um, but we're also discovering that there's a lot of material that doesn't shine uh, is probably the biggest component of the universe. So we call it dark matter. It's not clear that it's made of the same stuff as, you know, us and the planets and stars. It may be made of something different, or it may not. And that's one of the biggest unsolved questions at the moment. So that's an interesting one. What is dark matter? Wow. Um, I guess another question I had was, how do pulsars relate to the discovery of black holes or relate to black holes? Right, they both happened at very much the same time. Um, it was finally confirmed that there were black holes, um, stellar mass black holes, um, just a few years after we discovered pulsars. And I think the existence of pulsars as very compact objects made black holes as even more compact objects more likely, more, more possible, more realistic. So X-ray astronomers found black holes just a few years later, and we're finding more and more black holes in a great variety of sizes as well. Um, I guess another thing I was thinking of, like, in terms of astrophysics, um, Given the immediate pressing issues like climate change or the pandemic, I feel like there's always this push to fund that instead of things like astrophysics or like people don't really value finding all these discoveries, you know, understanding how the universe works as much as the, the pressing global issues that we're facing. How do you balance funding these priorities? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. It's something I think you have to keep addressing. You don't solve it today and that's it solved forever because the issues here on earth may get worse or get better um, but there's a strong argument for doing fundamental science research because that will turn up gadgets for instance that may well help us live on an earth where it's getting hotter or you know with issues like that 
So you've got to keep the fundamental research going as well, because that's going to influence the future also. Do you think that a lot of those discoveries that we're talking about are like things that need to be discovered within astrophysics? Um, do you think a lot of them haven't been because of a lack of funding? Or do you think it's just because they're really hard problems? Um, it's in part a lack of funding, but it's also in part a lack of um, really new gee whiz telescopes. Uh, telescopes on satellites and telescopes on the ground um, and, you know, research equipment in general. So it's partly that we don't have the kit. We are using the kit we've got very, very well um, in many, many ways, but better kit would enable us to find more. Some of which will be useless, but interesting. Some of which will be useful. What do you like plan to do in the future? Like, what are you kind of researching right now? Are you still focusing on pulsars or? Right, well, I'm well past retirement age and I'm going to have to retire actually one day. Um, I'm not personally doing research, but I am watching the pulsar field uh, and a closely related field, a very new one called fast radio bursts, which are truly mysterious and discovered by accident by the Pulsar people. And then there's a lot of, well, not a lot, but several very interesting new pieces of equipment coming along. Uh, things like the Rubin telescope, which is going to send out somewhere between 1 million and 10 million alerts each night. You know, there's something over there that's gone bang, and there's something over there that's gone bang, and there's something back there that's blown up. So that's going to be very, very interesting. So there, there's quite a lot continuing to happen that's new and interesting and exciting. So I think that'll keep me busy for a while. Yeah, definitely. Um, how do you think that like the field of astrophysics has changed since, since you know, before when you discovered pulsars to, to now? Um, even in terms of, like you mentioned, all this new equipment that's coming in or or just like, you know, just in general, how research works. You said the funding is changing, the way they fund things is changing now. Like, what are some of the, the big changes you've seen within astrophysics? I think the biggest change is the opening up of a whole new spectrum. You probably know about the spectrum of, you know, radio waves, um, infrared, light, ultraviolet, x-ray, gamma ray, mm -hmm. electromagnetic spectrum. We've now, just in the last few years, got a whole new spectrum opened up called the gravitational wave spectrum. And that's delivering some surprising results, even very early in its opening up. So I think there's going to be a lot more from that that's really going to keep us scratching our heads pretty hard for a while. <laughs> oh, I have not heard of that um, gravitational wave spectrum. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, so I've got my phone here. Mm -hmm. Gravity in, in my room. There's gravity between me and the ground. There's gravity between my phone and the ground. There's gravity between me and the phone a little bit. Uh, and so there's a pattern of gravity just around here. Now, if I move my phone, I change the pattern of gravity. 
just a little bit, but I changed the pattern of gravity. And that change is traveling away from here already at the speed of light. If I keep doing this, then I'm actually going to make a gravitational wave because I'm repeating the change. And so somebody away out over there, maybe where you are, might be able to pick this up one day. At the moment, we can't see anything as small as a phone moving. Mm -hmm. But if of two very massive stars going round each other, they're perpetually changing the pattern of gravity around them in a cyclical way. Mm -hmm. And that gravitational wave is being picked up these days with these new things. There are two major detectors in the USA, one in Washington state and one in uh, Louisiana. Um, and it's, um, there, there's also one building in Japan, uh, which must be just about ready by now. Um, and they're going to build one in India. So it's, it's a global kind of, you know, international collaboration to pick up these things because they're, they're pretty faint, pretty small signals, but they're getting better and better at them. And that's really, really exciting to have a whole new spectrum open up. Do you think that they could be used to um, detect new pulsars or? Possibly. Um, they're better doing black holes, um, really massive black holes, you know, 10, 20, 30, 100 times the mass of the sun. Pulsars at just over one or two times the mass of the sun are probably a bit light at the moment, but we're getting there. Hmm, that's really interesting. Wow, I never knew about that. So that's really cool. Uh, I guess, just like, what are some some encouragement or messages to young women interested in STEM or young listeners um, that are interested in pursuing a, a STEM field or an astrophysics field? If you're interested in it, I'd say go for it. You'll need good math and good physics. But if you're okay with those subjects, go for it. Hang in there. It's a fantastic subject to work in uh, with lots and lots of excitement. And I'm sure the excitement's going to continue for quite a few decades more. So it's a good time to be getting into research in astronomy. If you're kind of high school age or, or younger, what are some things you can, can do to already kind of get into if you're interested in astrophysics or astronomy um i know my i know my school doesn't really have any like courses or anything that you could take relating to that so what are some things you can do to get involved or see if you're interested have you heard of citizen science projects yes i i was involved in one of them right i would suggest getting involved in some citizen science projects in areas that you're interested in. Um, it'll give you a good feel for what uh, working in that field is like, and it'll stand you in very good stead when you apply for college or things like that. What is kind of the career path you would have when you decide to become an astrophysics when you study in college? In terms of like, are you working private or what is that like? Or are you working academically and what is that like? Mm -hmm. You're probably doing um, quite a lot of academic work. At high school, you'll need to keep your math and your physics going well. 
Um, at college, you'll be doing science again, probably specializing in physics, maybe physics and maths, depending just what kind of brain you have. Um, and that would set you up very well for going on and doing research in astrophysics. You don't have to do astronomy at school level, high school level. You don't have to do it at college level. Doing a little bit's probably a good idea to, for you to check out if that's really what you are interested in. What do you think of the kind of increased privatization of like astrophysics and astronomy? Because I know there's like now, you know, SpaceX and other you know, big private companies that are starting to do space exploration. Are they not really doing fundamental research? Is that still very academic? Or, like, how does that kind of impact well, the field? Space tourism is not academic. So if you're going up just for a trip, you know, <laughs> that probably wouldn't tell you a lot about astrophysics, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, but if you were interested in working on something like the space station, then that would be a good thing to have a go at if you could afford it. Um, it is rather expensive. You might actually want to spend the money some other way. But do you think um, at least has it, has it increased the interest in astrophysics or has it increased funding or does it kind of just distract from that, I guess? Um, I don't think it's had much impact on astrophysics, to be honest. Um, sure, the money could have been spent differently, but the person who, who's got the money, they're entitled to spend the money on what interests them. So I guess for, for kind of people, um, for the young listeners that are trying to get involved in astrophysics right now, um, what are some like areas that they should be focusing on um, within it, I, I know you mentioned like dark matter is making some breakthroughs right now, and you know obviously pulsars have a lot to be answered. But like, what are some some of the the things within astrophysics that need the most attention, need the most focusing, or are the most pressing questions right now that people should really be dedicating their time into? Uh, one of them is this gravitational radiation I talked about. You know, with moving moving an object and making a gravitational wave. That's a very new subject with a, a lot of future ahead of it. So that's an important one. I'm personally also interested in what we call time domain. Um, previously, with telescopes, you had to stare for a long time, take a long exposure in order to see anything. But now with the telescopes getting better, you can take many, many short exposures and see if something has moved or changed in brightness. And there's going to be a huge amount of data coming out from telescopes asking those questions in the very near future, including the first telescope named for a woman, the first big telescope named for a woman, the Rubin telescope, named after the US woman astronomer Vera Rubin. Um, it's going to be sighted hilly, and it's going to produce millions of events each night. It's going to be a huge job just keeping up with it. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do it. So that's another exciting area. So gravitational radio, radiation, time domain, um, then 
probably moving towards particle physics, the interface between astronomy and particle physics. What is this dark matter that makes up a sizable chunk of the universe? We haven't a clue what it is at the moment. We know roughly how much there is of it. We know roughly how it's spread through the universe, but what it is, we haven't a clue at the moment. Just one or two things we know it isn't. We've, we've eliminated <laughs> one or two. So there's lots of areas of um, developing interest, really important areas that will be just right for your generation when you come to be researchers. Lots of brilliant stuff to do. Yeah, definitely. I, I saw like there was a lot of cool stuff happening with the intersectionality between fields. Um, like when I was, I was researching the pulsar, what was interesting was I found some people are trying to like apply machine learning to the pulsars and like um, to, to process like all the data that they're, they're generating and like to identify pulsars better. So I thought that was really interesting. There's definitely much more interaction between fields. And machine learning is going to be very, very important for that Vera Rubin telescope with its several million alerts every night. The machine learning is going to have to decide whether this particular event is interesting and what it might be. And having made those judgments, decide who to send it to. So machine learning is, you know, huge databases and machine learning mm -hmm. are just about landing on us now. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time for for all science, I feel like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting time. So thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Um, I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Ariana. Thank you for some lovely questions. It's been fun to talk with you. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Keep well. Thanks.